0: We put our heads together to both reimagine and lift the bar on what a modern motocross helmet should be. Opt for the highest level of modern technology and energy dispersion with the Fly Racing Formula Helmet. Designed for an elevated defense against a wider range of real-world impact scenarios. Globally engineered with the most advanced materials
1: and technologies available. Outfit yourself with proven technology, lightweight performance, and elevated impact management with the Fly Racing Formula Helmet.
0: Hey everyone, this is Michael Antonovich with this episode of the Fly Racing Swap Moto Podcast on SwapMotoLive.com. Now that we're back home from Utah, we've had some time to reflect on the seven-race run in Salt Lake City that wrapped up the 2020 Monster Energy Supercross Series. All things considered, it's incredible to see how Feld and everyone involved in the events came together and worked through the unusual situation, especially with the new measures that were put in place to reduce contact between those of us that were on site. Everyone experienced the time in Salt Lake City differently, and we wanted to hear what it was like for a smaller organization, so we called up Michael Lindsay and asked how his Chaparral FXR Honda crew managed the month at the races. Knowing how detailed Michael's answers are, we kept the questions simple and let him share as much information as possible. Thanks for listening, and as always, search SWAT Moto Live on the internet, YouTube, and Instagram for more content from the track. Hey Michael, so yeah, thanks for getting on the phone with me. We're a couple days removed from the seven race run in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now that you guys have been home and had a few days decompressed, how has it been for you just being away back in your own routine? That's
1: nice. It was funny. I was talking to a few guys about this and I think it's just like how I think most average people would deal with traveling. Like it's fun too. I think the first like two weeks for most guys in Utah was cool. And then after a bit, you're like, yeah, you kind of miss your routine. It's like, yes, the mountain biking was awesome. Yes, the hiking was awesome. But you can also only do so much of just that without, I don't know, I'm a busy person that needs to wrench into other things. Like, I want to do something a little different every single day. So doing the same thing, same three things over and over again was starting to drive my ADD up the wall.
0: See, the thing that I was most surprised by, I figured that I'd get up there, you know, it'd be three, four weeks, whatever, uh, enough of a break between races that we could get some stuff done, and and I'd have all these awesome opportunities to do content, and we did, but I think we forget how much stuff happens, you know, in that short amount of time between races. It really does take a week to regroup, kind of go through all the storylines, all the things that happen, write about it, do the photos, do all that stuff. So, yeah, even as we got, like, a week, week and a half into this, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be way more difficult and way more time-consuming than we initially thought it would be. Like, it's going to go by way, way faster. That three-week time frame, like, I have no concrete thing of it. It feels like it happened in two days.
1: Yeah, and I think other teams could take it different. I think one for us was coming in with, you know, Chris coming off injury and Cody doing his first SXs of the year. I was – a little more busy in between every round, just like not jumping through changes, but trying to find little things to help the guys because we're at altitude. Normally, you go to altitude for one, two races a year. You, you know, you do some mapping changes, a few things, uh, uh, customize, refresh, try to get a little better. But where we were up there, so many rounds, we were trying to make improvements between each race because it mattered so much. Uh, so things like that, we we're more busy. We went really skeleton crew because we were informed ahead of time, like, hey, you know. It's gonna be very small. Initially, we heard it was gonna be like one per rider, and then the fellow came back and said uh, two per rider. Uh, we didn't maximize that; just I didn't have the budget to take a bunch of people there for three weeks. A lot of people that help our program aren't aren't full-time employees. I think that's any smaller 250 team ran into that. I saw a lot of smaller 250 teams that didn't have some of their usual wrenches. They would even have some of the riders' family maybe helping out because you know, they didn't have the budget to pay somebody to actually be there for three weeks straight and subsidize what they normally do. So I was wrenching for one of the riders of all the parts orders for chief stuff. And I had one, one mechanic that was available to come. So we were busy. And then of course I look over the factory teams basically still have their full staff. I was like, "Hmm, well, that did not work out like how I expected, but that's what all those guys' jobs are do. So if they were able to wrench in some extras, yeah, they were able to, to pull it off and bring that many people so maybe their life was a little bit better but for us the down base still required a lot of work to get the guys uh, ready and just without the and starts being so careful we were constantly you know taking some our days off to go up and do starts um none of my guys rode during the week like normal laps there was only two super crash tracks really up there there was the one that was built at miller and while i appreciate the group doing that track out there I took one look at it and there's no way I would have let my guys practice there during the week. That was risking it way too much for how it was built. I, it wasn't worth a little bit of track time you would gained to ride that thing. And Brackens was just two hours each way. And just, you know, Chris going through his injury really didn't need the riding during the week. Um, so we, we just kind of stuck more to going up fire, uh fire horse to Luke's sacks property and just practicing starts. Like you saw a lot of guys riding more of that outdoors track, just, Get a little bike time, we'd wander up there because it was only 15 minutes from our, the secondary Bb we stayed at. So that, that's kind of worked out better for us.
0: With you uh, in the middle of that break when the West Coast guys came on, you ran back down to California. What was that whole trip about? Get more parts, kind of reset some stuff, or was that always a plan? Uh, it was initially, like, I just figured
1: we would. Cody wanted to ride. He's getting ready for outdoors. We thought the outdoor schedule might be initially tighter to the end of Supercross. So it was like, hey, go home, get a little bit outdoors in. I just flat out need to get stuff done. Cause I got side work. I do the team. I don't make money off my team. So I needed like anybody else. I need the ability to go home, make money and, you know, actually pay my bills. Um, and then it came down to it that we had a really bad mud race the race before. So just really needed the space to do a proper build out. So I back up the bikes, re-prepped at home, did some top ends and just suspension services and stuff. And, brought them back and also spend a day or two back actually in your at least somewhat regular routine and i think everybody in the group appreciate like chris and his mechanic matter for arizona so they flew back and then me and uh cody just did the drive i my whole family's pretty much pretty much my whole family's from utah so i've driven that thing back and forth a million times over the years so set the cruise control at 85 miles an hour, put the feet up on the dash and it was pretty mellow
0: so aside from the mud race that was the one big damaging day on the bikes how was racing so many supercrosses on equipment in that short of a time frame
1: not too bad because we started with two completely fresh bikes when we went into it um so not too horrible the altitude was a little the altitude and heat of the races was a little bit harder on uh you know maintain the bikes just everybody i saw a lot of teams struggling with fuel boiling and just you know keeping the bikes cool and operating enough so i felt like we were jumping hoops there a little bit Um, honestly, the most difficult thing was partially the smaller crew is just, uh, initially we were really stoked on the idea of, oh yeah, you know, if it's a day race, we go in at seven and we're done by like three, like the, the schedule is very condensed or the evening races we didn't have to go into later, but each practice was so back to back and then the heats and then the mains, if you ran into a problem, you had so little time to get the bikes turned around and ready. And just the track, you know, being that it was fairly warmer up there, they were soaking in the mornings. If you were stuck in one of the early practices, the bikes were just completely caked. You just barely had any time between session again turned around. So I felt from being, having to deal with the mechanical side, like we were just pinned the entire day trying to get stuff. Uh, every time we would just be starting to get stuff done, I'll be honest, I took Cody to the line three times right when his number was getting called because I would be after heat race trying to get the bike cleaned off, do the usual hard parts checks. Uh, check one field, and then I'd be overdoing a clutch. And Chris's mechanic Matt's a little more experienced, little so quicker than I am, he'd be getting ready to go to the line. I'm like, oh man, I got like three minutes here, I gotta get this thing done and keep putting back up there. So, it I felt once again bad for the smaller teams, like just the workload. It was at least from our end, of the experience was pretty gnarly. So, I know quite a few other people went through too.
0: Was this your first like time being a real mechanic for a real pro supercross race? Like, I know you've done damn near every job in motocross at this point but was this a first
1: no because i did uh i did bloses at st louis i went with him but that was an easier schedule because it was regular but uh i did i wrenched for chris at um, st louis and i wrenched for a couple buddies at national's low key but chris is the beginning this year was the first time i took it you know serious and the fact that everything needed to be super proper and then the 250s are just a little more maintenance intensive with clutches and stuff so not the first time I've done it, but first time I've done it with that much pressure.
0: Mm-hmm. What's the uh, Michael Lindsay between moto routine if people wanted to adopt it into their own schedule?
1: I don't want to adopt my in-between. No, just like I think most guys do, you know, <clears throat> check anything related to operating, you know, check the length, folks. It's uh, check. Everybody's got some sort of checklist they go over, uh, maybe depending on their bike and what, what comes up. Uh, I tend to watch electrical, so doing like battery voltage checks, just basic torque checks on certain items that like to wiggle loose easier than others, um, depending on if we needed, you know, if the guys needed tires. Uh, We had a schedule of how we did our clutches, so certain, between certain sessions, clutches would come out and be swapped, you know, check oil level, check tire pressures again, because the temperature, if we started in the morning, we had a huge gain, had to be on top of tire pressures, you know, drain forks, um, pressure and things like that it's it's what most guys match just your like usual general after you ride list but in a much shorter amount of time and you have to do it every time just because supercross is so risky for the guys that you don't want to miss one single thing even if you it sounds dumb but even things like axles and triple clamps bolts like stuff that normally doesn't come loose it always amazes me on a race day with the guys colliding with each other and weird stuff what will come loose on a motorcycle or get damaged you just can't really afford to not look at everything because that one out of 10 times you don't look,
0: that's probably what's going to come off of mm-hmm. Um, With this being, you know, your first real time running a race and all that stuff, uh, a race season, races in that quick of succession, did you have some mechanical issues that maybe we didn't know about or was it a pretty flawless program all the way through? Uh,
1: mechanically speaking, no, we did have a small, um, electrical problem on, uh, one of the bikes, when it sat, we had an injector clog That was pretty quick. Not like I just heard, I had one of guys after first practice go like, Hey, uh, there was a small hesitation of pie. So I swapped the injector, pulled the one out of it and cleaned it and put it back on the shelf. Just single bikes. It was the one after the, after we had the break from the bike sitting for like a week and a half, there was a little bit of fuel, um, buildup that just. Happens a lot of teams either switch their injectors every week or clean them. I just didn't do that one. Um, we had a kill switch go bad the final um race for Cody during the main. That's what I was working on in the pit area. I was trying to get it disengaged because the Honda has a uh a map switch and a kill switch, they're integrated. And if a water or detergent gets in it, it can uh it can cause like a jump on the con like jump from the live switch that's the map switch or the kill switch and. We replace those or we keep track of them with tape. It was honestly a new one with the mud race before the race before that. I must have just gotten some water in it from overwashing, basically. So it, it went bad in the main. Other than that, we didn't have uh, anything on. Nobody hurt wheels. Oh, oh, Cody did do a good one. He crashed in the mud race and he broke a crossbar with his chest. And he managed to dent a fuel tank. And we're still not 100% sure how he dented the fuel tank.
0: Yeah, that's pretty brutal uh, because those are thick fuel tanks. Yeah, and
1: it was under the seat. We really still can't figure it out. I mean, there's been some uh, inappropriate jokes about that you nether know, region of the body bending <laughs> tanks, but uh, we still really haven't figured out how we did it. I didn't notice it until I took the seat off to check the filter and check electronics. I was like, why is there a big old dent in this tank? But uh, Chris was male because so he stayed, you know, fairly upright for the trip, so Nothing um, like two fire drills no motorcycle or anything crazy mechanical that we had to deal with. Uh, that's been awesome for us all year is, you know, big goals for your team. You want to be as competitive as possible, but you also don't ever want to be the guy pushing bikes off the track. And this entire year, we haven't had a single mechanical um, issue, which I do chalk that up a lot to the people we worked with. Um, Race Tech has an amazing reputation. Everything's been solved with them. JE's got an amazing reputation on the piston side. Um, you know, who we work with uh, between any of our technical sponsors, whether it's Engine Ice, Renegade, all them. And then um, uh, Christian Kibbe, who for a long time worked for the Geico team, helped me do the initial builds, the PDVs We knew everything was measured and built properly. Um, so at that point, we didn't have any worries and it all paid off because we didn't have a mechanical failure um, all year, whether it was practice or race, which is really nice to have to be able to start from that point. You know, we can build and get the bikes. Uh, More competitive next year, but it was nice to start off without destroying
0: anything. The Kibby thing is something that you've kind of hinted at and that I've known about for a while, but we haven't really talked about it too, too much. Knowing how good Christian is with engine builds, especially Honda stuff, how nice was it to have an experienced guy like that be right in your pocket on a first year program?
1: Super nice. I was talking about with the builds because it's like um, you know, Race Tech still did the the cylinder head and the cam spec to theirs. We were in a piston spec. We wanted a few things. We we came up with, but at the end of the day, I asked Christian. Like I use him for a lot for advice, just things to look for, and then the initial builds. And like I said, he basically treated our motors like he'd always treat all their race engines over the years. How he went about uh somebody's and checking everything, and just kind of you know looking over certain items. Like hey, you should tie the wiring here different, or you should do this for cooling, or this or that. Just a lot of things that were really based around I pick his brains, like, Hey, what, what could happen in the case of the demon that is super cross? Like, what could I possibly mess up? And he's like, Oh, you know, this is a one out of a hundred chance, but this could happen. And we would address those things. And at the end of the year it all, that all paid off that knowledge paid off uh, in the fact that we once again, didn't have any, any real major, uh, mechanical failures or anything. So that was, it, it definitely paid off. And I really thank him a lot for uh, his help and guidance.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, getting back to the actual events themselves, there was a lot of changes from the normal you know, processes, processes and procedures that we've come to know in Supercross. Uh, I think the track walk, lack of, of one of those, but just looking at it from the stands is by far the biggest thing. What did your guys think of that, and then what did you think of that going forward?
1: Uh, it was interesting.
0: Um,
1: yeah, I guess so you're in the stands. You can't evaluate everything perfectly compared to a track walk. Like, you know, what the real distances that feeling you get looking up a jump face i think there was positive and negatives to it because there was a lot of times i've been on track walk with riders it's funny how often they'll be like there's no way you're throwing this out of a corner that's way too big when you're on foot walking up it and then first practice somebody pulls it out and then by the end of practice everybody's doing it so maybe a little less intimidation maybe more helpful for cody being that he hadn't really raced super fast and maybe not have that intimidation factor of in walking everything and not having to walk through the loops and be like, oh, uh. yeah, I think seeing it from above helped to guys not overthink things. There are certain things it would be nice to walk the track for. There, there are certain perspectives you only gain there, the time you have to look at sections. But at the same time, I don't think it was that big of a negative because I've seen way, off, way too often where riders will just stand in one section, way overthink what the rhythm combo could be. Oh, what if I could do this? Which every once in a while they pull out, but a lot of times you guys just, like, maybe overthink sections, spend way too long getting either intimidated or just way overthinking the technicality of a section. So the viewing it from the stands and then rolling around the first callopsies, from my perspective, is, like, kind of manager was, like, eh, it's not the worst thing ever. Maybe some of the riders, you know, depending on how they like to do track walk, may disagree. They may feel like they really missed out on or some. I've seen some guys that do track walk pretty quickly anyways because they seem to care more about what they see on the bike than what they see on foot
0: mm-hmm. okay the gate pick procedure was different because mechanics couldn't go to the starting line first you were kind of rocky because there was no real sense of organization uh, but then a few rounds in the AMA gave everybody a numbered flag did you guys like that do you like not being the rider with the mechanic on the starting line a la the way they do it in the GPs or do you guys need to be there that way it takes some peace of mind off of prepping the gate, holding the bike, making sure the bike's straight, all that stuff?
1: Uh, I don't, like, we don't, as it's proven, we don't have to be there. I do wish they were because there were so many instances of stupid stuff where a guy needed a water bottle, he needed a different set of goggles, or, you know, just need something. And we're constantly yelling at the AMA guys to haul it back and forth because we're not allowed to. And there's just not enough of them down there to deal with it. And, and this is not offensive. I think some of the guys – Maybe the factory level, they've had more of the mechanic around with the umbrella, the coat, the, the different gloves. There's just so many of those guys just how many name naming guys every five seconds. Can you take this to my guy? Can I take this back? Can you take this to him? And it was just, yeah, it was it was messy. Uh, the flag system was kind of weird. Most of the riders, like, they didn't explain it that well. And then most of the riders, half the time, would just haul their bike up with them with the flag. It looked like the 450 class had it better than the 250 class. It was kind of a mess, honestly. The flag thing didn't help the guys very much. And then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, based on what we heard happen in the last 250 main, it sounded like Shane overrode those rules and took Chase's gate the one time anyways after a sight lap was the, the rumor flowing around. So, I don't know. I don't know if the procedure was followed that closely. Uh, yeah, the riders can get away without having a mechanic there. But if it continued that way, guys would need to prepare themselves a little different because there was just it was a scrambled mess. And then the worst was the... The red flag restart, they want to put the guys on the gate so early, and it's pouring rain on them, and everybody's trying to throw each other coats and throw umbrellas back and forth in the mud and dropping stuff instead of just having them wait before staging to get their stuff and we could interact with them. Um, the the red flag race we were a part of with the mud, I think it was for uh, Garrett Marchbanks, that one was kind of a mess.
0: Okay, going but. back to that topic of being prepared for the mud races, taking all the stuff to the starting line, every guy knows kind of what they need a lot of people took those tool cards down and stuff but goggles water bottles umbrellas did you plan for all of the elements like a mud race before you guys even left California to go to Utah?
1: Uh, not too much because like our prep we don't it wasn't so money that everybody went like solid rotors and stuff but ours is simpler as okay add some foam in a few places spray on some extra plastic you know like in our case I'll shine and go which was such just to kind of act like a almost like you'd use like cooking spray for it, try to get stuff not to stick. Uh, it wasn't so muddy. So no, we didn't prepare. Cause I looked at the forecast. I remember telling a few people before we went up, like my family's from up there. And I know that in that time of year, it could be a hundred degree, like 95 degrees one day and it could snow two days later. Um, so I was laughing. I was aware we could have got rain and it happened, but it, that time of year it never dumps too, too bad. So yeah, we were prepared for a light mud race. I was not prepared if we went, like, full, full mud race. I would have been like most smaller teams. I wouldn't have all the exact proper items you would you would want.
0: Okay, you being a smaller team, you don't have the gear guy or the goggle guy or the helmet guy coming around to every race. You know, it's not fresh gear like Ken or uh, Zach or anybody gets too. So what did you guys do? Did you did FXR just send you, like, a setup of gear, and then you guys just kept cycling through that the whole time, or was there fresh stuff for every race? I was the
1: gear guy. I got sent FXR stuff to hand out to everybody else.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, you did. Okay. No, we,
1: yeah. Yeah. They sent, they just sent, cause I had an address up there. So I had them send out pretty much like most of their operate stuff to me. And then I just delivered it, but I didn't like play gear guy. Like we didn't go back and clean the guy's stuff. them. everybody it was kind of of their their own vices, but they sent us enough product that we had plenty for the guys. Goggle wise, the riders on my team pretty much do their own goggle prep. Um, when they would come in from sessions, I would clean their helmets, you know, blow out any mud, take the liners out, throw them on top of fans we had inside and try to dry them out. So I would play, other than trying to mechanic and keep track of raise schedule, I was also playing partial gear guy.
0: Okay. Um, That's pretty cool to have guys that are still able, or not able, but willing to do their own goggle and gear prep and stuff like that because there's certain guys that just see that as another distraction. But then you could use that as a time, like, hey, dude, think about what you're doing, meditate a little bit, like, while you're doing this procedure really think about use it as an opportunity to think about what's going on on the track
1: chris's mind for like mud race was really interesting listening to uh, mention to cody like hey you know if we if we get more rain and it turns sloppy and it turns into just the the double 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 rhythms like you know if it's you be aware in a long rhythm lane sometimes you need to roll the inside go single double start on a different rhythm than them so you're always on the opposite rhythm in case they land in the bottom and it's sloppy and they slide out. So you have no chance because they could separate from their bag, take up a whole lane. You can't change directions as easy when it's slimy. So you literally just jump over them. It's like if, as long as the rhythms are somewhat similar and they're just doubling, you just try to put yourself in a different rhythm. So in case it happens to the guy, you're just jumping over them instead of trying to jump into them and scramble and turn and fly off the track. And especially Salt Lake was tough because the, the track, the, the floor area is so tight there was like no gap between a rhythm lane to ride down or on the side deal. So pretty much if you made a, a enough of an error, had to make enough of a, uh, a correction, that you had to jump off the track, you were hosed. You were either landing in the other rhythm lane or you were hitting the wall like Pierce Brown did the one time and Parsha.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. With um, having Cody be the rookie, Chris being the veteran guy, are you impressed by Cody's ability to make the main, you know, one, one of these very few attempts?
1: Yeah, because if you come back to his supercross experience, is literally Zilchinata. Like you see a lot of guys now live at the facility style thing. And they, even if they don't race supercross, they still start dabbling in it at like 14, 15, or 16. When they got on big bikes, at some point they're going to ride it. Uh, Cody rode a little bit of supercross at, uh, a couple times at club last year before he tried the jersey round, which he didn't even make. I believe he didn't even make the night show. And then at the East-West shootout, he almost made – his heat race was only going to be 20 dudes out of this coast. And then this year he's been a – he was a lot better there in qualifying times. For his little experience as he, he has overall, I was really impressed with the amount of gains he made per round. And it was actually something me and him were talking to another amateur kid about this week. Cody was like, don't make the same mistake I do. Start earlier because, you know, based on him being 22, like he probably started riding Supercross. It sounds drastic, but maybe six years later than some of the guys he's racing. Even if they're of the same age, there's a lot of guys that have been riding supercross at his age for six years longer than him.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a huge and thing, it, too, because, I mean, the older you get, the harder it is to adapt to something. Yeah, and you hear,
1: like, you know, t- uh, Tony Alessi has done some uh, some conversations where he admitted, like, they probably didn't start Mike early enough because they waited until literally he was pro to really start doing anything with supercross and he does his you know aim series kind of puts kids on more like junior supercross tracks for races and you know there's there's that slight aspect of oh is it sketchy to put a kid on supercross yes but if you do it safely if you have the right track like it's not bad for kids to maybe start learning at 13 14 when they get on big bikes you see a lot more of them play at least just goof around on it a little bit so when they hit that age it isn't such a shock to the system because it's kind of weird that we prep these kids like you think of them racing amateur nationals moto for so long to go pro at motocross, and then they've just developed the skills to be good enough to race supercross or to race motocross, and there's still the issue of the 250 class of like, okay, here's a 16, 17 year old kid going up against a dude who's 28 that's been racing pro for 10 years. Okay, you've been practicing motocross your whole career. Here you go. Oh, by the way, now you got to go race this experienced dude at supercross, and he's been doing supercross for 10 years, and you've been doing it for six months. Good luck. <laughs>
0: Chris's return from injury was a big deal because this all kind of fell in place right as he was cleared to ride the bike only a handful yeah. of days before you guys went up to Utah. How impressed are you by his quick recovery and then how fast he found he found the speed of the 250 East Coast region, you know, after so much time away?
1: Ah, uh, uh, Chris is – because I've heard stories like the years that he's been good in reading across stuff, like Chris has had some unfortunate off-season injuries before and situations where he just didn't have rides the last minute. So I think Chris has the mentality – he he can come in fairly unprepared. He keeps himself physically as prepared as possible, but when it comes down to pure riding time, I, I think it's why Chris is one of those guys that, like, I would love to see a shot if he had the shot on the one of the big, big teams because I really think he can – possibly chase championship be a top three guy all the time because seeing what he can do after only riding a bike two or three times is pretty impressive um his wrist injury is pretty drastic uh the amount of mobility is is mobility is extremely limited in that wrist he was having to learn basically how to ride like that up there it's a little bit bigger guy we're a smaller team at elevation um so that's always a little bit of a disadvantage in the in how much preparation we're able to have in that uh that realm Um, but I mean, the last race he was in his, the final, not the final race, the race before the final race, he crashed in his heat, was down half a lap and he still qualified. He set the second fastest lap time in this heat race. He beat, uh, there was a star bike in his heat. I can't remember if it was Shane or Colt. i want to say it was Colt. I believe he said better lap time than him and Shimoda was the only one in his heat that beat him on lap time and only by like a 10th or something. So
0: Chris is fully
1: capable and, uh, his experience definitely shined through for how little prep he had.
0: I mean that showed in the uh, in the Sunday finale too, where he was the fifth fastest guy in the East Coast region. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit less stacked of a class compared to the West Coast, but at the same time too, he had lap times that were on pace with the top guys yeah. in the field anyway, and he, and you don't just look would, into that.
1: And he would set his laps early a lot of times. We had you know I was taking screenshots of board and bored teasing him because it was I was teasing about Happy First Father's Day because he just had his kid you know not so long ago. He was sitting, like, second on the board for our region for a lot of it. He's good at, you know, he understands the tracks really well. He was able to set his lap times quickly. Um, And the only guys beating him are on full factory bikes, Uh, you know. So while, yes, our coast was a little more depleted of pure, pure talent, he was running with the guys he needed to be running with that are on, on the big boy teams.
0: What's up, this is Justin Barsha
1: of the Monster Energy Yamaha Team and I trust the Rai Helmet. I know that every helmet is handcrafted in Japan and that the people who work at Arai are obsessed with building really the best helmet they can possibly can. Staying safe is a priority for me and this is why I choose Arai Helmets. Hey guys, Hunter Lawrence here. Lately I've been spending a whole lot of time at the mountain bike trails in the local area on my Intense Primer and the thing's badass. For how good it is going up the hill, it's uh, amazing coming down the hill. It's uh, comfortable, nimble, and it doesn't feel uh, like you're going to go over the bars every five seconds. Uh, all their bikes in their lineup are awesome, so, yeah, you're ready to get serious about training on a cross-country bike or crushing lap times at your local trails, or if you want to go a bit further, uh, longer and faster, they, they just brought out a new Taser e-bike, which is, uh, yeah, everyone's given a double thumbs up on, so head down to your local Intense dealer or, or purchase uh, directly at IntenseCycles.com, check it out guys. What's up, this is Christian Craig. As a motocross racer, being in top physical shape is a must, and my favorite way to train is cycling, and whether it's road biking or mountain biking, I rely on Roy's Cyclery to keep my bikes in perfect running order. Roy Cycleery has been servicing Old Town Upland, California since 1962. Mention the Swap Moto Life podcast for additional discounts in the shop. Hey, what's up, guys? Malcolm Stewart, Works Connection has been building the best aluminum parts in the motocross for the last 30 years. From the awesome Pro Launch Start device and their original adjustable clutch perch assemblies, I am proud to use it on my Moto Concept Honda. Check them out at WorksConnection.com. What's up, Swap Moto fans? The Toyota Vescondido Action Sports Team supports some of the biggest racers in the sport, like Aaron Plessinger, Shane McElrath, Dean Wilson, Axel Hodges, Colt Nichols, Brian Deegan, and more. With over two decades of supporting racers, we've become known as the place to buy a Toyota truck in Southern California. Toyota Escondido is a proud sponsor of the Swap Moto Live Show, and all you have to do to get the best deal on a quality Toyota truck is mention the show and tell them you want the action sports special check us out online at toyotaescondido.com for more
0: switching gears a bit going into how important these seven races were to get done you know right now we're going through this period of two nationals are announced anything past that seems a little bit uncertain there's a lot of mixed signals on on how we're going to go about this summer getting these seven races was huge Um, It saved a lot of companies, a lot of teams, a lot of riders. You know, it saved their careers pretty much because this is a chance for them to fulfill their sponsorship opportunities, race for some purse money, do some things. Uh, For you, how important was it to finish these seven out?
1: Insanely, because race teams don't make money unless they're racing. Sad part about it, but yeah it's it was because i think everybody ran into it um and this is not this isn't against any particular company it's just the state of the sport and i know every race team basically faced it that some level of sponsors didn't pay in march and april because we just hit a pandemic we were nobody knew what their sales were going to be there was definitely a dip off um since then it's been at least amazing on the west coast what what's happened to motor uh to motorcycling um dealers here are reporting some record sales in a lot of segments which is cool to see but that first month of March was hard on everybody. Um, So there was a lot of people that deferred payments and teams were quickly running out of money. I I felt lucky that I had some debt from starting a first year team, but where we are, where the only real full-time staff is myself and guys are paid based on race weekends and jobs. Um, I wasn't bleeding too much money, but I had nothing incoming to work with where a lot of teams were bleeding money and having to cut salaries. Like I, You know, I'm not speaking for all teams, but based on some stuff I heard, you know, I I don't know how some of them would have survived another month or two of it of just bleeding cash uh, without any sort of real, real sizable income Um, because race teams are run tight. A lot of them don't, you know, they don't really make that much money if they make any at all. So if you take out even like even if some brands are paying, but you're losing 50 percent of your pay each month from sponsors, uh, you're going to very quickly go into the red. So it was super important to get done Uh, doing it in one location was preferable. It still wasn't cheap. Um, There were still some expense to it. There was some less expensive travel back and forth, but we all basically had to rent houses or Airbnbs for the month. We had to buy a lot of food up there. Uh, Just a lot more hanging around up there. So there was some extra expense involved. It it saved some money, not a drastic amount, um, but it it did help. At least I think most guys budgets start to come back into uh, a more reasonable range, but, I really wouldn't have liked to have seen what happened if we had to wait to the end of the year to finish out Supercross because as as much as any core fan would hate to hear it, we are mostly paid for Supercross. Uh, Most brands do not pay near the, the premium for outdoor championships, so not completing Supercross really hurts everybody at the end of the day. So uh, I'm really stoked, like, as much as I kind of complained earlier about how some of the stuff was maybe handled, I'm insanely grateful that Feld managed to put it together and get the series done. It's what we all really needed to to have happen, um, I think, to to save a lot of people a lot bigger issues down the road.
0: Yeah, I think that there was a lot of little stuff that Feld did that maybe people didn't see. There was a lot of, of small things that happened... Um, Every race was presented by a different sponsor. So that last one was presented by the State of Utah Sports Commission. Fly Racing had an event that was sponsored where they were the title sponsor. It was little stuff like that to work in some extra branding opportunities. That Fly Fan Zone, I mean that was a huge deal where people were printing out those cardboard cutouts. That that's yeah. that's a business element for them. You know, Fly felt everybody wants to do that stuff. So it looks like there's some marketing, some money that gets brought in just cool little things like that to filled the voids that were left with no fans being there. I I have to say that the no fans thing was more surreal than I thought it would be at the first race. And then by the third race, I was like, this is perfect. It actually makes the job a little bit easier because there's no crowds or commotion to cut through. Um, For you guys, what did you think of having no crowd there?
1: Uh, No crowd the first round was super odd, especially a daytime race. Everybody lining up for a heat race. There was this lack of energy. And I'd be curious to hear from some riders how much that affected them guys like just mentioned it was weird I don't know how many of them maybe feed off energy or something would have been kind of weirded out by it it was awkward I will say that the condensed let's say let's say in a miracle world we went there racing we did a condensed schedule but there were fans around they were around the pits uh I would have want to cross back and forth and and uh, we were all just washing from our chalks and stuff like it wouldn't have worked with a bunch of fans around uh, the way we were running the schedule it would have been a way too chaotic, um, but I think that's a big part why the schedules were what they were. But they wouldn't have they wouldn't have worked well with fans for what we were trying to accomplish. Um, as much as I would have loved to have people there, um, you know, for what we were trying to do, it wasn't necessary. Basically,
0: I didn't realize how much free time I had to hang out until it was uh, taken away from me. There's a lot of downtime where I take it for granted, and there were days a lot of days actually probably more often than not where the time between one practice session and the next where I'd be editing photos I would just have to miss part of one session or set one out entirely there was a lot of days that I watched time qualifying the last the last round from the photo den on my computer just so I could write the race report the practice report get the photos out there put some stuff on social cutting away an hour is is hectic for everybody I think even for the track crews it's not ideal but it is what we needed to do. And it kept us from just setting there a lot of the time and just wasting time.
1: Well, that's something that hard one. Cause you have usually coming out of the final practice session. Like I'm used to the practices being fairly back to back, but you come out of that final practice session and you have such a huge window of time for the guys to sit down. You need to do both ends of the job to sit down and go over whether data or video or make bike changes or whatever, kind of work with the team. But then there's time if they have their family there, they can sit down Whatever their pre-race routine is, which I think we know a lot of these guys, they're, ha- they're creatures of habit. So take them out of their their habits, whatever maybe their pre-race rituals are. How long they like to spend warming up? Would they like to eat? If they like to talk with their significant other? If they have a child? Or you know how they work with their crew? You're cutting out a lot of that before the race. So I'm sure a lot of guys that guys that are a creature of habits that was probably pretty odd for.
0: Did your guys have issues with the heat or the altitude?
1: No, neither my guys did. They actually both commented, uh, uh, Cody never having raced at altitude. He was like, this is not that bad, except for the only time we noticed is we stayed like a lot of guys, uh, especially for our second part of our trip. We stayed up towards park city and we did some hiking way above town. That was horrible for me. I I thought I was going to die at one point hiking. Um, (laughs) No, the the race, both the guys were okay with it. Both of them were okay with the heat near my guys have any sort of, you know, elevation um, or heat exhaustion issues or anything like that. They both, I mean, they both said it was definitely not easy, but nobody really in our group had any severe issues with it where we saw, like I said, there was definitely some riders that were struggling with it from a a health standpoint.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Going forward with all that stuff, did the changes to the schedule, like you said, the creature habit thing, did guys ever bonk? Did they ever feel like they were out of food, like food or fuel or anything like that? Or especially for that Wednesday night, that first Wednesday night late race, did that super late start really throw their clock off a little bit?
1: Uh, I think those guys were good. Chris, we kind of teased Chris a little bit because we let him sleep in. If, because we had so much time, we like literally made sure we all we actually pretty much all stayed up late the night before to make sure everybody slept like a dead rock, and we slept in kind of late because we had most of our bike work done. We went in later to make sure nobody felt like they were too far out of their element coming into the late race, uh, which sounds obvious, but you know, we just wanted to make sure, uh, no, that race wasn't bad. Um, I will say like the overall schedule was interesting to me. I was kind of thinking about it later. Like I, I wouldn't be terribly opposed to ever messing with a schedule. Like I, I wouldn't want to see an entire season of racing, you know, technically twice week back to back, but I also wouldn't mind seeing a schedule where, say, we did four rounds. Like, in two weeks, we did four races, and then you had a two-week break. Because, I don't know, I'm just a huge fan looking at other motorsports where it's F1, MotoGP, MXGP, that they never race more than three weeks in a row. They're always, you know, one on, one off, two on, one off. Three three on is a big deal for them. Um, I I like some of the breaks in between. I think for some guys, it would definitely create less of a burnout over their uh, career and stuff. And I'm, not, I'm not I'm not, opposed to double headers or double races of like that in the future if it would allow for also some breaks in between to allow these guys to have more of a, a normal real life. Because while being up there for two weeks was hard, it's also really hard the week-in-a-week grind, especially for maybe more the team side that need to be there, do the bike builds, how you're pretty much gone for three or four days, home for maybe three or four, but you do that every week, week in and week out for, it feels like half the year on end because the breaks are so short.
0: See, there's a couple places that I've thought like, hey, you could do the Saturday-Wednesday thing there, which is a little bit more of a time frame. The Sunday to Wednesday was way too tight. Uh, We do need that Saturday atmosphere, especially for rounds like Anaheim 1, San Diego, Oakland. But if you go to a place like St. Louis, which I love St. Louis, you know, it's home, turn out that that race hasn't been that great. I don't think people are really going to care if the pits are open or not. So you could take that away. Uh, Detroit, no pits there, doesn't really matter. If you went Indy to Detroit, if you went you know, Indy to St. Louis, however, Dallas to Houston. I think there's a couple places where this could work, where you could, they're not too far apart. There's two cities close, maybe five, six hour drive between the two. Yeah. Dirtworks has this down to enough of a science that they could just go from one to the next one, get it all taken care of. Yeah. And we would have a life on the weekends. I think especially coming out of this whole quarantine thing, I realized how nice it is to be at home around the people I want to be with kind of a normal life every Saturday, instead of just being airport, hotel, road. Uh, racetrack you know i think that we would actually have a lot of guys figure out that there's some enjoyment to this instead of just thinking 32 weeks of the year are going to be devoted to being at a stadium or at a racetrack on a saturday
1: i i'm i'm really for it because like the other end of it i want i want riders that like what we're doing more i don't want zombies i want guys that have those weekends off in between to do something, you know, be home with their family, but also do maybe some more interesting social media interaction, just do stuff other than just grinding themselves to the bone. like, you're saying, I look at like maybe like Anaheim one to San Diego could work because San Diego pits are already super messed up and spread out and you don't get that much fans through because it because it's, it's so far from the stadium. It's like, you could do a one on the Saturday and you could do the San Diego race on a Wednesday, maybe like the Wednesday races do, if you have certain cities that line up or certain States so you could do venues like that, uh, I I don't think it'd be bad at all to basically in January, if you could find a way to knock out four races in the first two weeks and then take two weeks off again, I'm, I'm kind of for the idea of Ford or at least toying with it. I wouldn't mind seeing a block of races like that next year and see what would happen.
0: Okay. With a couple other things that, you know, we've talked about and maybe changed in the past. Um, do you think that going about the 250 races first and then the 450 races, do you think that's okay, or was that way too much of a tight time schedule for you guys to turn things around for the LCQ?
1: Oh, when they did the 250 LCQ after our heats, that was absolutely horrendous. I did, no, I don't want to experience that again. Because uh, with Cody, literally the one he crashed, like I'm trying to, we had so few time. Like we literally went right back to the starting line, and I was trying to straight stuff and staging. Uh, LCQs after heats are not fair to anyone, especially smaller guys, because those don't have the the resources. And usually, a dude, a good amount of dudes, ending up in LCQ have a problem in the heat race, so uh, it's not kind on anyone. I was not stoked. I think we did that at two rounds I participated in or something, and I was not for
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um, seven o'clock Supercross has always been the standard, but a few times this year we've had like a four o'clock or a five o'clock. It's been a little bit more common in the last five years that has toyed mm-hmm. with the schedule. What do you think about an earlier start time? The fact that we did it I'm, a few times, I think it was super helpful because we got out of the stadium at a reasonable hour.
1: 100% port. I've said it for a few years. I, I would 100% be by be okay with dropping the regular schedule at almost every round of 6 o'clock start. I think certain venues 5 o'clock is perfectly fine. Um, I just think like, I think of being a kid and stuff like it's pretty late The 4:50 means run late. I wish they were a little earlier. I really think the West coast races would be better off being a little earlier for the TV time for East. And I don't think people realize how freaking late we're at the stadium a lot, whether you're a photographer and you're in the photo den till midnight, or you're the guy that has to do, um, the water, you know, the water test afterwards, and then has to go do press conference. And you're not leaving the stadium till 1130 midnight. You have to be on a plane to fly back home at 6 a.m. The next morning, there's no restaurants left open. You really can't get a real bite to eat, a real bit of sleep. Uh, and this sounds, woe is me, all the riders' lives are so hard. But it's it's real. It's it's stuff that I I think there's multiple reasons why an earlier schedule wouldn't be too bad, especially rounds that maybe the pits aren't as busy anyways. Um, the earlier starts gives, I think it's better for TV time for, if it's a West race for these guys to watch instead of having to stay up so late. Um, and like I said, I think it gives the guys that little slice of normal life, uh, being able to actually get out at a decent time and get a bite to eat and get some sleep before a flight.
0: Okay, the one thing that I've seen a lot of people comment, especially within the industry, if we did go to a Saturday-Wednesday schedule, toss some midweek races in to open up some time frames later on in the year, if that would actually mean, you know, they could add some more races. It would go from a 17-race schedule to a 20-race schedule or something like that. Would you be okay with adding more races to it, or is it already way too much of a, of a headache as it is right now, and to add more strain to it would just be too damaging for riders and teams?
1: Too much. I, I think we race, like I said, when I compare, I think that's the current problem, and the reason I'm down for midweek races is to find gap for these guys. I'm not for it just to, to allow Feld to have more races. I'm not for it, unless... Unless there's some drastic change in how the teams are paid and everybody, if they're if they can make money and we can be there more often and we're compensated for such, let's have the conversation. If it's just for them to hold more venues and it's the same deal, then I'm completely against it.
0: To yep. do the digital riders meeting was a big change because everybody got a link, you know, Friday or Saturday night or Monday night, whenever the race would be, and that cut down on a lot of the standing around and waiting during track walk. Is that something that you guys expected? Did you like that because then you didn't feel so obligated to stand there and you could go off and focus on your race day at the time?
1: Yeah, I was fine with it. Uh, both my riders were fine with it. The only negative I can see is maybe some guys want to ask you a couple questions, but if we did some normal track walk and they just have staff to ask afterwards, I thought that was uh, completely, completely fine.
0: Okay. Um, we'll start wrapping this up. A couple more things. Being a 250 team, would you want to split up and be a full-time team? Because I think that we've seen more and more of a push from that, especially after these showdowns happen where all the talent's together. Or is that way too much of a strain on you guys and it doesn't give your talent like Cody Shock or Chris Plois a chance to shine instead of just being in this gnarly, gnarly deep field of 250-class riders?
1: Um, I think it's... Yes and no. It's an expanded upon thing. Like, I think of uh, the issue of what I said earlier between the 17-year-old kids racing the 27-year-olds and what's expected of them. You know, and the fact that you're going up against a 10-year veteran. If you can't be competitive, a lot of teams are, you know, there's some kids that begin one-year shots and begin thrown out for it. Um, I'm only down... The 250 class to become a full year class if there's another development class added underneath it. Because to be honest, a team like mine, a team like Traders Racing or what was Traders Racing and now uh, like a team like Club, there's a lot of teams that cannot afford to do the full schedule. We can't do it, especially if you're on a, a lot of smaller teams. Again, operate off people that are doing it on the weekends. They have a, a real job. Um, they can't take that many weekends away from their families and stuff. what I like to see? Am I all for a, a 250 class that, you know, pays as well does and guys can stay in it their whole career and race if that's what they so choose so, like another form of motorsports where, you know, the size, the engine, or the class doesn't mean a thing? Yes, but I'm only for it if another development class um, exists because I still think the regional style layout is uh, is helpful and it helps some of these smaller teams. It helps some of these guys get noticed. Um, if you just chop it down to one, none of these teams are going to, like – Ico PC the weird years where they end up with five or six dudes they're not going to do that you're going to lose a bunch of rides you're going to lose McCarrick's jobs you're gonna you're gonna lose stuff would it be would the racing be better yeah but I think there's too much sacrifice in the meantime and it would hurt even more younger kids coming in a lot of these teams can focus on okay we've got on each coast we have our veteran we can wing it and give a kid a chance. Well, if they're being paid to win championships and it's all one championship and you just don't have the budget to do it across that many guys, you're going to keep picking the veterans, the ones that have the higher chance of pulling it off. You're not going to take the risk on the youth.
0: There's always been this tension between the riders and the teams and then the organizing body of Feld and the FIM and the AMA. All things considered how this went, do you feel that this was the best outcome that they could have had and the best communication amongst all parties? Or were there a few things where you're like, hey guys, going forward, we need to figure out a few things and work on these details?
1: Um, I thought their communication with the big teams was great. I think their communications with the small teams was absolutely horrendous, and i would not be a dick, but I had to find out everything from an OEM team, and then I was busy passing the info on to a lot of smaller teams. There was no communication um, really with smaller outfits, with privateers. I was getting calls daily from so many people trying to figure out what was going on because they weren't getting info. Um, and I understand like the end of, they don't have time. The, the few people that fell had on staff still to take care of this, do not have time to talk to everybody, but a weekly, at least a weekly email update on what was talked to the factory teams would have been extremely appreciated. It, it put a lot of guys behind the eight ball. Um, and I thought of, like I said, I, I applaud them for pulling it off. I applaud them for going through the effort of getting it done. Now I think it was super important for the sport, but I think their communication, to everybody outside the factory level teams was uh, very poor.
0: I think there's a lot of stuff that we tried there that could definitely be enacted in the future. I think the, the track walk thing, the writers meeting, not the press conference. The press conference thing sucked. I hated doing those digital <laughs> ones. That was terrible. Uh, yeah. And I think it just, even the technical glitches of, audio recordings, phones breaking up, guys not having their phones on mute or sideways or whatever it was. It's just little stuff like that that I hope we never have to deal with again. But there was a lot of useful stuff that I thought not spending 45 minutes standing on the track just kind of bullshitting with people every morning was was okay. I I could do without that if it meant that it gives me more time later on to do something else or go talk one-on-one with guys and not distract them from track walk. But then other things too, I think that we really do see where there is lapses in communication from one group to the next that we can always improve on because that's what's going to make everything way better for all of us if you guys don't know what the race day schedule is on a rain race and you're a small team and you have to go to the media or someone else to get that answered that's not good so i think going yeah. forward yeah this really shows where like hey we do have some weaknesses that we could work on but there's a lot of strengths and a lot of new things that we could implement starting in 2021 or even immediately that would show how we're going to work everything out and have an even more professional and flawless race day schedule.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. There's, there's always stuff like I, I always think from communication to felt that can always be worked on with a lot of smaller guys. Uh, I think certain stuff with press conference can always be worked on. Um, there's a lot of things in the schedule. I think like I said, I'm, I'm fully behind some way of getting the guys more of a spread out life. While still getting the correct amount of races and there's always stuff to be worked on. I'm a, I'm a huge believer. I, I overuse the saying really bad. I always say, you know, saying insanity is, uh, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And I think a lot of sports are facing it. Doing the same thing over and over again or, right now is not working. Uh, there's no room for growth if you're just doing it. If you're, if you're not growing and you're doing the same thing over and over again, well, it's not going to grow. It's not going to go the right direction. Um, so I know every year they make minor changes, but I think at a certain point some, some bigger stuff needs to happen.
0: Cool. Hey, dude! Thanks for getting on the phone with me. I really appreciate all this time. We'll see you at these uh, outdoor nationals whenever they start. Who's going to be your guy on the track?
1: Uh, just Cody for outdoors. I'm not like doing full-blown uh, team aspect. Uh, just helping Cody on a 450 to keep him busy, keep his national number lower. Um, of course, I would love to eventually have an outdoor team, but it's it's difficult budget-wise. There's a lot of things I'm working on even in the next upcoming weeks to kind of decide what a program will look like next year. Um, I think just like everybody coming out of this financial time and what the rest of the year can look like, uh, it's hard to want to make it. You, you want to expand, you want to do better, but you have to also be conservative in the fact that I don't think answers will come. It's, it's weird. It's like, I'm a, going into second year. So there's a lot of things set in stone, but there's still going to be a lot of things that are going to be late answers on. So I can't put too much stuff to, to, to writing. Um, but we're going to try as much as we can to get as much of next year started as ahead of time as possible. Cause I want to make up as much of a gap as I possibly can. I have said, yeah, I expect for a team to be a championship team. I want to do a development based program, but at the same time, I want to have true off seasons and true off season prep. I don't want to be the team that continually just hires the best leftover guy in December and wings it and prays for a good year. Uh, I want to do as much as I can to be like a big boy team. And, uh, have full off seasons, full time of testing and be able to prep the guys as well as possible. And then outdoors is still interesting too, with uh schedule, just cause like everybody, we're, we're all waiting right now. There's a rumored schedule. Um, I think I understand what the first four rounds are going to be, but it's going to be pretty weird. We've seen the two that are announced. Um, then there's the love pro national. And I believe that will be followed by high point. I've heard of a few suggestions afterwards. Um, I'm a little more stoked with the suggestions I've heard now because one of the schedules MX Sports put out prior I thought was insane how much east to west coast they want people to do because this is not the time and year for that and I completely understand the position of trying to keep as many legacy rounds on the same date as possible but we all need to work together to try to get this outdoor season done in a meaningful manner uh, enough that it satisfies racers, fans, and sponsors alike but we need to get it done in a manner that works for everybody on a on time span and on price span. We can't just be jumping around the country randomly week to week because there's some week the one week this race can run and then it go all the way to the other side of the country for this one race to run. If it's uh, if if it's too spread out, some stuff needs to be cut. Some different stuff needs to be done to make this manageable for everyone.
0: Cool. Hey, Michael. Thanks for getting on the phone with me. Appreciate it as always. Uh, we'll see you at Ironman.
1: Cool. I'll see you there.